Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains accounts of child sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. People don't realise what's going to happen to them. They don't have any choice. Like... I chose to take drugs, but I didn't choose to become an addict and spend almost 40 years of my life addicted and controlled. I never believed that the life I was living in, I never believed that I deserved that. I always knew that I was better than that, but I just couldn't get out. Once I got in and those handcuffs went on, those drug handcuffs, there was no way I could get out. We hear some extraordinary experiences on this podcast and often from our listeners. And this week's guest is Robin Lewis, who is one of those listeners. 
Her email hit our inbox and what she shared made us want to know more. Robin spent decades coping with the aftermath of a frankly brutal childhood. And not surprisingly, her adult life hasn't been great. But things change, and in Robin's case, dramatically. And she's using those decades of chaos to give people who are in a similar situation some hope. I won't say any more, so let's hear it from Robin. And a note before listening. Our guests share their experience. Each person has their own way they deal with life. So if there's something you hear that prompts questions for you, whether it's about mental health, medication, ways of dealing with certain situations, make sure you speak to someone you trust, like your doctor, counsellor, specialist, you get the drift. We'll have details of services in the show notes for this episode if you've been affected by anything discussed. And a good first port of call is Lifeline on 13 11 14. Now, let's hear from Robin Lewis. As a child, I lived with my father and my mother, and I was one of 11 children. My father was just a very violent, alcoholic father. All the money that my father earned all went on alcohol and gambling, and as young children, we used to have to go to the local um, tip, local dump, and scavenge for food and clothing and shoes and toys and Yeah, it was absolutely horrendous. Terrible to think like that when the police were called when we were children and my mother was getting bashed within an inch of her life, that the police would come and take my father back to the very place that started everything. Because my father, when he was sober, his name was Friendly Fred because he was the nicest person, but when he drank, he turned into a monster. And he was a big man, like he was about six foot two, six foot three, and he was huge. And my poor mum, she was like 5'1". And, you know, when we were little children and this great big man, like, you know, with so much rage and anger. But like I said, when he was sober, he was the nicest person. Like everyone loved him. Everyone came to him for if they needed something, he'd be the first one there to help them. Um, but when he drank, he was just, he just changed. Another part I know of your story is about sexual assault during your childhood. The fact that for a lot of people, as they um, become adults, and want to speak up about sexual assault that happened to them in childhood. By that time, they have uh, had lives that have involved drug and alcohol use, that have involved engagement with the police. And so they can be treated like they're poor witnesses. Like they're an unreliable uh, narrator kind of thing. And so predators keep getting away with things and this treatment that you've already spoken about continues. Absolutely. Like... um yeah, my father's friends, they were the main perpetrators, you know. We would be told that we had to go and babysit for my father's friends Then they would come home from the pub drunk and one woman, she knew what was going on. The husband came home um, this night and I just stood up to him and I said no because, like, he would just come and, like, take advantage of me and this night I just said no and, you know, I started, like, getting loud and, He said to his wife, he said, get this C-U-N-T out of here. You know, like it was my fault because I resisted him. 
So she took me and she hid me in another bedroom until like five o'clock in the morning and like five o'clock in the morning in the dark, she drove me home so my family, you know, would be none the wiser and, you know, and I'd be gone before her husband woke up and there'd be trouble in her house because she was a domestic violence victim and it just my mind boggles when I think back to all the things that happened, you know, and and how these men got away with it. And like I said, this woman, like she knew, she knew what he was doing. How old were you, do you remember, roughly, at that time? I would have been around 14, 13, 14. It happened, like, over quite a, a few years. We lived in fear all our childhood. Like, we lived in, in absolute fear. Where we lived, there was a dirt road that come down from the pub and there was bitumen to a certain point and then... We knew when our father was coming because when it come off the bitumen, it had hit the dirt and it made a noise. Like it was probably like 500 metres up the road, but we could hear when it hit that gravel and we knew it was him. And we would run. We would run out of the house, all of us kids, in the middle of the night. If it was winter time, it would be absolutely freezing and we would have to run into the fields and to the neighbours' crops. And we would have to hide in the crops and he would yell out and he would be yelling our names and he would just, he'd be going, Robin, come home. And I knew that if I didn't go home that I was going to get bashed. So if I went home, I was going to get bashed. If I didn't go home, I was going to get bashed anyway. So, But just all us children sitting in that, field in the night, in the cold winter night with the moisture from the crop and we'd be sitting there freezing our little toes off and we knew that if we went home we would get a flogging and, and um, yeah, it was just absolutely horrendous. It was. We just lived in fear, constant fear. And it's interesting, I think the other thing that you've done there is um, for anyone who's never lived through anything like that, you've clarified that in an abusive situation like that, it's not about you doing or saying anything clearly to upset the person, the abuser. He has come home wanting to bash you, to get out his feelings. He hasn't even seen you. It's to do with his inadequacy, his whatever, his trauma, childhood trauma or his whatever it is, and he's trained himself to deal with it by beating other people up, weaker people. Yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't um, until he died about four years ago that um, obviously because we've all been estranged, like all my family are estranged because of the way we were brought up, but we only found out, I only found out like when he passed that he had actually grown up in a really violent childhood too. Like I'm not making excuses for his behaviour, but he grew up in a worse, more violent household than what we did. And um, unfortunately he never broke the cycle. He just continued the cycle on with his own family. And, you know, you can't help but be empathetic and sympathetic to what he went through as a child and he didn't know any better you know like today in in our our time we have access to counseling and you know we we can talk about it and acceptable to talk about it but back then like 
you know, nobody talked about it. And I can only imagine how he felt, you know. I, sh- I should absolutely hate him, and I did. I did for all my life until he passed away and I found this information out and I just thought, you know, there was no one there for him either. Robin, I found it really interesting, you know, because I was thinking when you were talking about when you, you and your siblings would run out into the fields and I thought, you know, these experiences either bring you together or pull you apart. And we've certainly spoken to people who the family just becomes estranged and you just mentioned that. So can you talk a bit more about that? Because you've got so many siblings, like did you sort of bond together, but then what happened to sort of split you all apart in terms of not seeing them or like, how's that been for you? For me personally, it's been terrible because all I've wanted all my life is a family. But my brothers and sisters are so damaged as well that it's almost impossible. Like just the way that we were pitted against each other and the violence that we've seen, we've tried over the years to get on and whatever. It just doesn't work. There's so much damage being done to us as a family and it breaks my heart. Do you say publicly that you had six concurrent addictions that controlled your life for 37 years? What were they? What were those addictions? I was addicted to marijuana, cigarettes, alcohol, gambling, antidepressants and ice. Yeah, it's all about, and it's all about just trying to find that fix to numb, isn't it? So it's and either the ciggies or the dopamine. Or, would it be? Because yeah. they're like, I think, um, I'm just thinking like gambling, especially, yes. and speed and meth. Like they're real dopamine hits, aren't mm. they? Really, like, yeah. trying to get those happy hormones. Yeah. Mm. I've got depression and anxiety now, and I've um, got PTSI. I mean, who can grow up in a situation like that and, you know, and be normal, like, or anything but normal? I felt like I never fitted in. I felt like I was always like the odd person out and always tried to fit in, you know, but I I knew I was different. Do you remember when you first started using drugs or alcohol or anything like that for relief? Well, I started sneaking alcohol with my brothers and sisters when I was younger, like when I was like, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, and we'd grab a few cigarettes and we'd smoke them and, you know, and whatever alcohol we could find when the parents, like, passed out drunk. Um, When I was 15, I uh, went on a holiday down to Sydney to stay with my Sydney cousins and um, they introduced me to marijuana. They said, oh, you know, let's have a smoke of this and, you know, it'll make you feel good. And, and they were right. It was great. And from that time on, like, I loved, I loved marijuana. Like, I could be, I was free to be happy. So how, I, I can't imagine ever seriously thinking I'm going to beat this stuff. Mm. I know you wake up every morning, I think we all do, wake up every morning thinking, No, seriously, I'm going to do whatever it is. I'm going to start walking again or I'm going to whatever it is. I'm not going to do that I'm going to stop eating carbs or whatever it is. Like we all have these things we try and tell ourselves we're going to do. But how did you really convince yourself, I am going to cure myself of these six addictions because those are six biggies? Mm. Honestly, for a long, long time, like, I mean, for years, like, 
I hated it all. I hated it. I hated what I was doing and I hated the fact that I couldn't stop it, that I didn't have any control and um, the whole lifestyle just made me sick. The lifestyle is chaos, isn't it? It's hideous. Like to keep up with even one addiction like of speed and or gambling is hideous. It's a full-time job. How were you making the money to keep up with these Even cigarettes these days. Exactly. Bloody hell, it's like 60 bucks a packet. Can you tell us a bit about your day, like your normal day? How are you keeping up with all of this? Well, I actually started selling marijuana like at an early age, like really early on in the piece, and um, and that pretty much financed my lifestyle. That and shoplifting, I became a really prolific shoplifter and I mean, not just like, you know, a bag of meat or, you know, a couple of packets of toothpaste. I'm talking about loading up a whole trolley, like, to the brim with thousands of dollars of stuff at a time and just walking straight out through the doors, you know. And um, I just became really good at that. And between that and the marijuana, selling the marijuana, I, um, yeah, I survived. But that's a drag because you've got drug addicts in your house all the time. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And it wasn't until I got sober that I thought, oh, my God, these people were never my friends. Like, And I do not even associate with any type of person. I just I feel sorry for them. I have empathy for them and understanding and compassion for them. But I cannot have that type of person in my life because their lifestyle is like so loose and it's drama, drama, drama. Were you like in a relationship, a family? Like what, how was your life running? Like, I mean, I know you weren't doing a nine to five, but, or maybe you were doing a nine, nine to five. 9pm to 5am, I think, <laughs> probably most likely. Uh, no, I couldn't, I couldn't hold down a job. I could get a job, but I couldn't hold it. I couldn't maintain it because, you know, after a little while, people would start to see that things weren't right and, you know, I had this thing with, you know, the the ice mites. When you're on ice, like, and speed and, and such, like, you sort of focus on something. Like, some people might pull their cars to bits and work on the, the car for, like, two days, where some people, like, they fixate on their skin and they can just sit there for hours and hours and days and just pick at their skin. Like, it's absolutely horrendous. Like, I'd turn up for an interview and I'd look, you know, quite respectable and then, you know, maybe a week later I wouldn't be able to come to work or I'd turn up to work with sores on me and stuff like that because of the picking and people would soon, you couldn't hide it for very long. So I couldn't stay in employment very, very often. I just had this compulsion to pick my skin. Like, you know, I'm really pedantic with my skin. I really look after my skin and you know, and to think back then that I would pick my skin until it was just covered in sores is absolutely like it just, oh, I don't know, I shudder. And, well, um, or what about, you know, those stories are sensational stories you hear about, but you speak to people in emergency rooms, some people will masturbate for 36 hours. Oh, absolutely. And I was one of those people. Oh, love. I was one of those people. Like ice really... Um, you know, makes you really horny and, yeah. like, um, and you can't get enough of sex, like, um, you know, and most people that are on it become sex creeps, like, or whatever, weirdos, the shit that we do, like, sexually, like, it's just not normal. The drug just really 
takes you to this place? Like, and you just become like a freak. Which go, takes us back yeah. to Emily's question: Did you have a partner? Because yeah. if you don't, then what? Are you are you going out? You know, you are you picking r- risky behaviors? Going to the casino and, and picking up? Yeah. What are you doing? Well, I used to have um, buddies, like you know, booty calls. Yeah, in between picking my skin and shoplifting and whatever. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> would, Robin, you have no time um, for a job. Yeah, then I wonder, yeah. <laughs> pretty screwed up lifestyle, honestly. Like, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone, anyone listening. Like, yeah, don't even go there. People think, oh, when they start out, they think, like, drugs and, oh, yeah, it feels good. It does. When you first start out, it feels great, but people don't see People don't realise what's going to happen to them. They don't have any choice. Like I chose to take drugs but I didn't choose to become an addict and spend almost 40 years of my life addicted and controlled. I never believed that the life I was living in, I never believed that I deserved that. I always knew that I was better than that but I just couldn't get out. Once I got in and those handcuffs went on, those drug handcuffs, there was no way I could get out. You know, I was trying for eight years solid, eight. Eight years I went to rehabs and detox and counselling and I don't know how many different drugs I took to try and stop me taking drugs and, um, oh, my Lord, it was just a vicious cycle. And so for eight years solid I was really, really trying. Like, I mean, I wanted to change my life and it was it had that big of a hold on me that I couldn't get away from it. Like, honestly, the shit that I had to to go through and the things that happened to me, like, honestly, I um, I had a partner that got murdered. My partner, Greg, got murdered. He was in Canberra. He and another guy went around to this other guy's place and it was over drugs. It was over marijuana plants. Greg and this guy, he was a high-ranking um, biker, they went up to... This guy's house knocked on his door and this other guy, like, answered the door. He went back and said, look, Greg and this big bad-looking guy standing at the front door and um, they want to talk to you. So got a gun and went out the front and then next thing you know, Greg and were dead in, on the street. Hmm. I had another friend that doused himself in fuel and, inside of the back of his van and set himself on fire and killed himself. Oh, my God. That's an incredibly violent way to take your own life. It was horrendous. Like, you have no idea. Like, I'm so scarred by it. Like, And then I had a a partner that um, ended up being a murderer and I didn't know until uh, the police, the detectives knocked on my door at 8 o'clock one morning and said, we've arrested your partner for a cold case murder. He murdered a, um, I don't know, 52-year-old woman like um, 10 years earlier. They bashed her to death with a hammer over um, an ounce of marijuana. This is why I, I talk about it and this is, you know, why I want people to hear my story because I wouldn't wish what I went through on anybody, the things that I've seen and the things I've had to do, absolutely terrible. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. So when you decided to recover from all of the the six addictions, did you try to recover from all of them at once or did you try and go one by one or what was the plan? How did you end up doing it? Yeah, so fortunately I gave up the cigarettes a couple of years before. And then I still had the other five addictions and um, one night I came home and I was really drunk and I was really high and I turned my stereo up really, really loud. I lived in a caravan park. I owned a house in a caravan park. Obviously I had like heaps of neighbours around me and then the next morning I got up and they'd made the neighbours had got together and they'd made a sign and they put it in my garden and it said, the village idiot. And, oh, my God, I looked at that sign and I just broke down and, you know, I dropped to my knees and I went, oh, my God, like, what are you doing? And that little sign, that was it for me. I just threw everything in the bin and I've never looked back. Wow. God, gambling, marijuana, speed, meth, what was the other one? I've lost Antidepressants. one. Antidepressants. Antidepressants. That's that's a hard one. Yeah, absolutely. And I was on um, a drug called Seroquel. It really knocks you out. When my partner Greg got murdered, I needed something to try and calm me down. So this doctor gave me Seroquel, and I just was happy to take it because I thought I don't care. I just want 
to go to sleep. I just don't want to think about anything. I want to go to sleep. And they didn't tell me all the side effects of it. They didn't tell me that it was suicidal, makes you suicidal. They didn't tell me that there was a massive big lawsuit in America. There was thousands of people like um, sued the pharmaceutical company in America um, because people were suiciding on it. That's when I became suicidal. Um, I didn't know it until after I got off it, but that's when my suicidal tendencies or ideologies or whatever you want to call them came into play. And um, I used to spend my, my time thinking of ways like to end it all. And yeah, my life was shit. And I, you know, I wasn't happy with the way my life was. But mm. when I was taking this drug, like it just um, personified like, my suicidal thoughts. Had you ever disclosed to anyone about the sexual assaults, the sexual abuse, or what, was there any reckoning for your father or for the men like who did that to you? And also, was your dad like a cop? Firstly, my father was like a like a legend, like in the freshwater fishing, and everyone wanted to go out fishing with him. You know, like. They used to go out there for weeks at a time on the river and, and camp and everyone would have a great time. Like I said, he was generally a nice guy. Like he was a really nice guy with a name like Friendly Fred. He didn't get that for no reason. Yeah. But um, as far as telling anybody, I find it very hard to even talk about it today. I've finally just gone through the victims of crime. Oh, good. And um, it by no means can ever erase what's happened or I could ever forgive what's happened to me, but I got a nice little payout, which has made my life a bit easier and I can go now, well, when I look at stuff that I've bought with that money, I can go, well, like it wasn't all in vain. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I, I think compensation, the problem with that is we, I don't know if it's cultural, if it's Australian or what it is, but there's a sort of a shame feeling that people can feel about it, like, oh, I don't want people to think that I was in it for money or some some fucked up shit feeling about mm. it. I don't know. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's recognition that you were, that it did happen, you know. It's not a matter of going in there and saying, look, I was sexually assaulted. There's a lot goes into it, a lot of counselling and, you know, a, a lot of tears and, and a lot of um, rehashing everything. It's, you know, and it doesn't happen overnight. And um, it wasn't just for one, like there was five. I had five different um, claims, if that's what they call them, and, and they were all accepted and they were all recognised that that actually happened to me. Yeah, and after, you know, your childhood of having authority figures, police, mm. do nothing, let you down, to have the authority figure not let you down is a big deal. Yeah, Absolutely. I think what you just shared is really powerful because we, we've also heard this. It's really important for people to know that they can report things yes. that happened. Historical crimes. Historical, Absolutely. you know, because for quite a while, often people thought, oh, there's a statute of limitations or I can't share that. But it's like we've spoken to Victoria police detectives and they're like, you know, any time it happened, you don't even have to like take it any further. You report it. We talk and it's really powerful to know that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's no time limitation. Um, the thing is that when people have lived through a violent childhood like me, like you just want to 
you know, get high and, and just forget everything. And, you know, it wasn't like it took me till I was like 52 or 53 or something until I actually, and I was sober by then, but I, I looked into it. Yeah, yeah. We know, you know, there's enough evidence now that we know that most people react like you have. Mm-hmm. You know, most people, it takes a very long time to get to the point where they can talk about it and they can trust enough to pursue it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I love about the, these type of podcasts because you can hear other people's stories and, you know, and you guys can see the pattern with the abuse and stuff. And then when people get sober and then they start talking about it, I love that. To me, that's the, the value of true crime. It's like the more we talk about crime with victims and even with offenders, the more we learn what's normal and then we can start to change legal processes and change the way police deal with victims and all of those things because we start to learn what's normal because prior to that victims don't talk no. that people don't speak out if they think they're going to be treated like junkies or yeah, sluts or whatever them. you know like you're not going to talk have any of the perpetrators of this sexual violence against you are they like has anyone ever been held to account well when you put in a, an application you actually have to report to the police if that goes on record, I don't know what they do with it. I haven't heard of anything, any charges being laid. Like a couple of them are deceased. Well, three of them are deceased now out of the five. So there's only two that are alive. I think they just put that on file just in case there's other file, other cases or something else happened. I was thinking, Robin, like, so you, you decided you had enough and you, you stopped everything, but presumably that would have brought up a lot of stuff. Like, how yes. did you get support? Because recovery is pretty hectic. You can have slips and slides. I imagine a lot of stuff was coming up for you. Yeah. And, and what do you do when you're not medicating? How have you not gone mad? Yeah. You know, like, like I'm yeah. assuming, yeah, after you've <laughs> let go of all yeah. of that. He says I'm not. All of your, <laughs> but you've let go of all of those yeah. crutches. Surely all of the trauma came back up like, at that point. Not even the smoke. You're not even having not like even some smokes. smokes or. Or the pokies. Or the pokes or, you know. What has saved me is exercise. Yes. Like I became an exercise freak and still religiously, like this morning I gave myself a, a day off, but. Pretty much like six days a week I go. I live across the road from a gym. So I go down to the gym. I live across the road from a massive big bike track that goes all around my where I live. And so I spend an average of two hours every morning um, exercising. That is my drug now. Basically, that's what saved my life was being able to get out and exercise and, you know, have those good endorphins coming through and you know I'm 58 now and people say to me like you don't look like you've done what what you've been through like you don't look like it like I've got all my teeth my skin's good like I'm fit and healthy and and I attribute that to a really healthy diet and exercise. I often wonder that do you think there is such a thing as a an addictive personality and if so do you think you have to give yourself a healthy addiction if you want to kick bad addictions? Yeah, people have addictive personalities. Absolutely, I do. But now I, I focus on the good things, good habits instead of bad habits. <laughs> when? How long have you been doing this? When did you think, 
okay, I can do this. I can go and talk to strangers and tell them what happened. I started a smart recovery group myself. Smart recovery, it stands for self-management and recovery training. So what it is, is you actually like manage your own recovery. So my doctor told me about the program, started traveling down to Newcastle once a week, and it's like a 90-minute free program. So anyone, you don't have to have a referral, anyone can come in off the street and you just sit around in a, like in a group, you just share your story and um, I used to tell my clients, if that's what you want to call them, I would tell them my story and one day one lady said to me, honestly, your story, it's really inspiring, you should talk about it, you should tell people and, you know, because I think people would really, like, resonate with you, especially, like, the ice was really bad. This was, like, pre-COVID. So I sort of came into it in a time, at a time where everyone wanted to know, like, what can we do? Like, our, the world's out of control with the ice. And I ended up contacting um, Rotary Club and I just said, would you like a guest speaker? And they said, oh, yeah, that would be great. And then it started from there and then, like, um, yeah, the media got a hold of it. They contacted me and said, like, could we you know, write about your story and it just went from there and it just snowballed and, like, honestly, for three years, like, I was, like, full on. I pretty much went on the road. Like, I just travelled around regional New South Wales, like, all over the place, like, giving um, free talks. I did it all out of my own bank account and my own time and some days I'd be away for four or five days at a time and I really thought, you know what, like this is so worthwhile and it really made me feel good about me too and people's like responses, like, you know, I've had emails and, and messages from all over the world, like people saying like I've read your story, like, you know, I've got a problem with my son or what I like doing is that a lot of people direct their attention towards the person in addiction where I find that I like to talk to the families and I find that a lot of my audiences are the family, you know, because most people that are in addiction don't want to know. They just, like, say, bugger off, like, I'm fine. I find that the majority of people that contact me and that want to um, interact with me are the families, strangely enough. They want to know what they can do for their loved one. When you're in full-blown ice addiction especially, like the person can't see or they can't, they can't help themselves, and, but their families are sitting back and they're watching it all and they can see it all unfolding and they can see, you know, how this person, their loved one's life is spiralling out of control. And I love to be able to talk to them and give them advice. Because a lot of people don't know what to look for. You know, a lot of people say to me, what do I look for? You know, what are the signs? And so when I do my talks, I, I have a kit and I say, if you see this lying around or you find this or if you start noticing sores or, you know, or you see your spoons are bent up and they're burnt on the bottom. But, yeah, that's why I like to talk to the families because I know that I'm not wasting my breath. I know that I'm talking to people that care and that are listening and the advice that I give them, they take that away and, and they implement with their loved ones and that's where I get my pleasure from. Just to know that I 
could give someone some advice and help them. It was just really empowering, you know, and I just thought, you know, this is this was meant to be. After being a taker for all those years, I felt like I was giving something back. Thanks to our guest, Robin Lewis. Head to our show notes for more info and support services. Also, we love to hear from you, so comment, email, message us. We do read them all. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.